listeners, this is Talking Frontiers. I'm your host, Riju Ray, Associate Professor of History at Jindal School of Journalism and Communication. In this podcast, we explore histories, ethnographies, and cultural articulations of spaces understood as frontiers, borderlands, fringes, and margins. In this series of episodes, we will have conversations, exchange ideas and stories by showcasing the rich scholarship and literature on the erstwhile northeastern frontier of British India. Geographically, this frontier included not only the seven states that make up northeast of India today, but also parts of Bangladesh and Myanmar. Welcome to another episode of Talking Frontiers. Today joining us in the studio is Dr. Sanghamitra Misra, Professor in Modern Indian History at Delhi University. Dr. Misra has published extensively on the history of colonial Northeast India. Her first book, Becoming a Borderland, The Politics of Space and Identity in Northeastern India, was published in 2011. The third reprint was published in 2017. Dr. Misra has uh, published many journal articles on subjects ranging from political economy, law, language, resistance, and most recently on ethnogenesis. Her second book is forthcoming with Rutledge Press. Welcome to JGU, Professor. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me at this podcast, Riju, and uh, it's a real privilege. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, very excited to be doing this, um, doing, doing this with uh, a fellow historian. <laughs> Um, so I want to begin our conversation with a discussion on the importance of teaching history of mm. Northeast India mm. in our undergraduate and graduate mm. um, postgraduate curriculum in yeah. India. Yeah. Uh, you teach courses on the histories of borderlands and mm. the Northeast. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about the courses uh, you teach and also comment on any pedagogical limitations and gaps? Yeah, it's you know I'll speak about my uh, experience uh, of teaching in Delhi University, you know, at the postgraduate level, and uh, which is what I've been doing for the last now, you know, many years, 15 years. It's very interesting that you began, you framed this question by saying borderlands first, you know, because I mean, while that occupies one's mind, you know, as we know, for various reasons, but it's also, uh, you know, when I first joined the department and we were thinking very seriously of uh, revising the syllabus, which we did, and we introduced almost 100 new courses in 2011, uh, you know, framed by a very dynamic and active department. Um, there was a lot of pressure on me to frame a course on Northeastern India, which I then refused saying that uh, I will not ghettoize the region and it should be studied in you know different courses across. Why not in gender history, labor history, economic history, nationalism? It should be a part of all of this. And there is no reason for me to study this region as a region because you know that itself is a construct. And I will instead teach a course on Asian borderlands, which is what I framed. And I framed another course on margins of history, which had to do with Western and other parts of you know Indian, the non-Northeast part mm -hmm. so to be uh, you know I act I now when I look back I basically avoided teaching northeastern India I think because I think it was so close to my heart and I wasn't certain about how I was going to teach it or so I gave all these other reasons for it but uh, in a, a few years in the university in the department and I realized that 
while i do not want it to be taught as a history of you know as an exception uh, it is important to study the many exceptional laws and the you know the many specificities that made northeastern india what it was during the colonial period and that unless you understand uh, this history you know we, you cannot comprehend actually the character of colonial capital in the rest of the subcontinent as well and how colonialism uh, the, or or you cannot actually comprehend what is colonialism because this idea that you that colonialism and con- you know conquest is association with conquest ends somewhere around the mid 19th century in the subcontinent and then it's consolidation uh, you look to the history of northeastern india and you realize conquest begins you know and it continues into the 1912 20s you know the last of the naga territories are being conquered so there was a lot that was going on and that is when i framed this course and it um, and uh, which which i call you know i call it colonial northeastern india economy society politics and it's uh, you know from the mid mid 18th to the mid 20th and um, i think i mean one major reason is of course the amazing work that historians like you and you know so, and so many young people in the last you know few uh, years have done so there was a huge amount of rich historiographical material to work with completely i know and where i completely disagree with the the perception that there is no work on the history of northeast india and absolutely not you show me another region in india where this kind of work is coming out of you know uh, we have excellent work and um, so and and there was a lot of demand i think of course the contemporary politics you know the uh, you know the antika movements and so on there was a lot you know around the nrc and 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 of course this long history of militancy and anti state uh, you know uh, uh, movements that we've had and identity of course so there was this kind of lack of knowledge not just from outsiders but also from within i think i think i mean i find students uh, studying in the education system of northeastern india being as ill equipped as i was as well you know when i studied came out so it that was that and uh, it has been really enjoyable teaching this for the last 4 years but the challenge has been uh, in areas where there hasn't been work mm-hmm. uh, and which are very uh, you know important areas uh, you know if i were to think of an example you know le- let's say colonialism and anthropology now the look of it it seems like you know we've you know we have work on it but you think of practices like you know any you know say primitive violence so, or a practice like head hunting how do you understand its social meanings and you know how so it or or the very question of raids you know how mm-hmm. do you, so that kind of work again linked to the idea of violence and kind of of course understanding what is primitivization itself that has not been it is being worked upon slowly but that has not been sufficiently addressed so there i found myself turning a lot towards primary sources which mm-hmm. students read and enjoy hugely so i have made that an important component mm-hmm. of the course so they read a lot of printed material from the early 19th century onwards you know missionary mm-hmm. records ethnographies gazetteers reports and they present and speak mm-hmm. on that and that they love uh, you know that's making them into historians and we then uh, refer a lot to work on southeast asia because they're in you know works of people like Kenneth George and Janet Hoskins there's a lot on how to understand primitive violence and so yes i mean the the challenges have been few uh, the the pleasure has been entirely mine and uh, i'm i'm really grateful i started teaching it's, it's taught me uh, a lot more about the northeast than i ever thought i'd know yeah it makes me want to 
come and you know enroll in your class no you should come and <laughs> teach in the class you know we should have more people i mean it's more like a discussion based class what you were saying about you know gaps in history writing mm. uh, which is very much related to i guess uh, issues that would come up during teaching or sort of even formulating a course I'm also thinking about a lot of writing um academic and mostly non-academic that is uncritical or fetishizing or derivative of colonial tropes and assumptions. Mm. And um your uh, last book Becoming a Borderland challenged a lot of those existing assumptions uh, and ideas about northeastern history. Um can you tell us a little bit about how that book evolved um or rather how the how you ended up writing the book and some of the theoretical propositions that still remain very very relevant i mean the primary concern when one is uh, when, when i was you know thinking of framing my proposal or thinking of, or i think it's less the framing but the process as one you know continues to research and work then uh, and it it was it came out of my phd research so it was a long uh, period but i think the primary concern was of course this very static category of you know the frontier the borderland like you said and this idea that i mean it comes you know it's the same association that you have you know the essentializing the idea of the northeast or you know the you know where does this category so you historicize that right so and then when one historicizes when one begins to look at i mean i don't think i approached it thinking of space per se space kind of uh, emerged from it you know it was more a question of how do you study an area that is a kind of uh, established borderland you know in the national imagination in the post colonial imagination um and in the colonial archive it's very much you know it's a fragment and and there are so many fragments you know floating around you know bits of bhutan bits of uh, you know bangladesh bits so how do you then you know uh, what is the story that this region had and i think uh, and that is how i began with you know thinking about how does the history of migration or land or essentially the materiality of the of of a concept like space like how do you then if you historicize it what are the ways in which you would understand what is space so i think then then it had to be very uh, you know if i'm looking for material uh, you know kind of notes then uh, i'm looking at the history of political economy essentially and uh, a little bit of the premodern to understand how that notion of space changes and then of course the legal and the jurisdictional and the manner in which you know land comes to be perceived different so land as very i felt very integral to the idea of how one imagines space right where you live place and so on so I think a lot of it is uh, you know when I've finally wrote up the title as becoming a borderland I do not I don't think that is how I had started it was more a, a history of a periphery to to understand what had peripheralized it and what were its other you know uh, histories before it became this periphery in the imagination and then I think a history of space through language land and you know a border so I think in, in some ways it, it is not just the idea of historicizing a borderland that or the that concept that is that remains relevant the but the fact i mean you can extend it then to any kind of anachron no kind of a critique of any kind of anachronism right so a critique of the idea of the tribe mm-hmm. or the idea of uh, you know uh, your hill plain or any so it then in fact when i now look at it uh, you know sometimes when i look at the book i feel that uh, I, i would be quite critical of the way i looked at uh, the garos in the book you know that they for me formed a category of shifting cultivators who are uh, at the, i mean i was not studying them but there was no attempt in my book to even understand that that these 
communities who I, you know, the Kacharis or the Rabhas or the Garos, uh, who were they and how do you comprehend their life? I mean, why have I already sequestered them in the hills? You know, why have I... Ex so, so I think uh, my I have a sense of fulfillment now in the sense that this was late 19th century that I was writing about. I went back a hundred years and I actually recovered a history which was, uh, which, which tells me that the, that the, you know, that, that, that the Garos became shifting cultivators of a certain kind, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote, savaged and primitivized only in the late 19th century. So mm -hmm. I think it was very much a borderland, but also a history of the valley. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and you've actually led me to uh, my next question, which mm -hmm. is on the Garo community. You're mm -hmm. writing on the Garo communities uh, in colonial Northeast India. Um, can you tell us how the archival material that you mm -hmm. use from the late 18th yeah. century onwards yeah. attests to this very complex uh, relationship between uh, landscape, livelihoods, and mm -hmm. communities? Mm -hmm. No, it's quite stunning, actually, the 18th century archive. I think, uh, I, I feel, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, for my for my earlier book, most of my, although I did kind of dip into the pre-modern, most of it was from the mid-19th and the late 19th century. So while that archival material is very easily available, the the 18th century material is, is way more exciting because you, it's so malleable, the times then, you know, you actually see how sovereignty is being forged. Um, the East India Company sovereignty uh, the and, the and the sovereignty of the Garos and, you know, you know community Khasis, you know, communities which are, not only, I mean, that is the problem. We are talking about communities being forged at the anvil of resistance. You know, they are coming into being uh, as they, you know, they kind of, you know, as, as they resist uh, another very powerful sovereignty. And um, and how are, you know, legal jurisdictional lines being drawn to separate them and how they resist. So you actually have evidence of, a uh, very dense evidence of one, what completely upsets the hill plain binary, which you don't see in the 19th century anymore, uh, late 19th. What you see, the kind of control that, uh, you know, that, 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 uh, that communities uh, have over hills and plains and the foothills in between. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I have a lot of evidence in the archive that I found on, for example, I mean, which, is, which was really my, uh, you know, the fulcrum of my work, which is, uh, you know, the, the cotton production among the Garos. And this is, uh, it is true that many communities in northeastern India produce cotton but uh, like I've shown in my you know this work uh, recent work that I've been publishing is uh, and which I again show at great length in my book uh, is uh, the, the kind of production from the Garo Hills we are talking about a volume of cotton which was equivalent to or more than many districts in Bengal you know cotton producing so and that history is erased from collective memory from oral traditions from ballads from so you can only look to the archive for this history, right? So, in that sense, I am, uh, you know, more old-fashioned and conventional. I believe that, uh, that 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 the archive, you know, read against the grain, read with the grain. There is a lot of material there to recover histories of, you know, uh, conquest, military, very violent military coercive rule, and a very determined recalcitrant, you know, protest rebellion uh, for, for nearly a century of a people who. So then it, you know, it's uh, it's it's about forging of communities. You can actually see who, what is becoming a Garo. That so many, you know, uh, you know, is it about kingship and clanship? No. Uh, there are community, there are Bengalis who become Garos. There are others who take on the surname of Garos. So the very, you know, there is a lot, you know, of uh, you know, uh, kind of you can see history being forged. And I think 
and and like i said you know the cotton files were quite amazing and of course uh, uh, which which really kind of uh, changed uh, you know the manner in which i saw this community and 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 i could then trace the very dramatic transformation uh, you know from the mid 19th century onwards mm-hmm. yeah what what really struck me uh, while reading your work was how um it, y- your recent articles uh, resonated with a lot mm. of the research yeah, i'm doing on yeah. legal history yes In fact your work on custom livelihood and tribal identity of the garos yeah. uh, in particular addresses um yeah. what I was unable to put in my book mm. which covers the garo khasi jentia uh, yeah. hills as well as silhet yes uh, of course. so it was very exciting reading that article yeah. and can you explain to our audience uh, what you mean by ethnogenesis mm. in uh, terms of sort of the customary identity of and how you trace we, that historically yeah more yeah, yeah exactly i was yeah. waiting for the second part trace it historically <laughs> no because i think one has to you know and since you mentioned silhet i mean that is where the history begins for northeastern india i think when we look at the history of ethnogenesis which is uh, you know the creation the construction of communities as tribes you know as by the state now obviously here one's talking about the colonial state and the post colonial state will have many pernicious similar legacies uh we're talking and and ethnogenesis also um, in terms of how this how people respond to to such constructions and then construct you know kind of forge their identities accordingly so when i look at the history of north i mean if i can say northeastern india here or let us say eastern india into which mm. it kind of very seamlessly flows mm. one has to begin i think at least in silhet and you know uh, you know the kachar valley and mm. that is where the you know uh, where the blueprint uh, of uh, this initial conquest and ethnogenesis mm-hmm. begins and that is what you know that process begins in the 1760s when you sequester the khasis in the hills and uh, and you prohibit you actually uh, there are actually laws then as and tells us of you know and and which i have had the which i have seen as well uh, you know colonial laws which talk about uh, that that the khasis are prohibited from descending to the plains right and of course therein lies a whole history of uh, erasure of trade connections and and political control i think the denial of politics to the primitive you know that is that is where uh, you begin you know the primitivization begins there and then you extend it into the garo i mean contiguous i mean it's you know garo hills and and you see the same history kind of you know repeating itself there and this time the 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 the, the kind of you know sequestering will have to happen from the assam side as well as from the you know the side of bangladesh now that you know so so your sherpur shushang that side uh, and once you have uh, you know framed a set of exceptional laws that uh, that, that that the colonial state frames these laws to then you know carve out these areas as you know uh, and uh, you know as as separate spaces uh, you know fix people in these circumscribed habitats the history of legal primitivism that flows from there right that you then uh, then you have a whole discourse in the colonial archive about how these communities have these very archaic practices of collective political will and so on but what i find and what i the article you're referring to where i write about these customs of conquest is that 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 very i that itself is a invention of the colonial state this the, you know though they are completely you know they've hollowed out by the time they're writing about legal primitivism or you know in the sense of uh, of of there being collectives and political will and so on they are they have essentially hollowed out the institution of you know let us say the assembly for example the garo assembly uh, or i'm sure the khasi assembly you know similarly and they have then you know reduced them to revenue uh, collecting uh, assemblies you know which meet seasonally at marketplaces in very militarized dense marketplaces uh, 
and they are there for the collection of revenue for the uh, for a very extractive colonial state. The process of you know the, the ethnogenesis is exactly that that you have now created a hill community which is a tribe that is now in the hills, which is primitive, which has to be, uh, you know, which has some of its own very archaic practices, which must be preserved. But what you're really preserving is actually a very hollowed out institution, which has no sovereign will or politics. You know, the Garos, for example, uh, you know, in their assemblies where they would hand out, you know, death or punishments or, you know, take collective decisions together. You really saw in these early descriptions of Bukhanen and so on, you know, their political will manifesting itself, you know, their oath-taking ceremony which was a very kind of you know display of their uh, you know you know their will now all of that has been replaced uh, with uh, you know them being reduced into revenue collecting uh, you know quote unquote chiefs so yes i think you know that is uh, along you know the history of ethnogenesis is very closely tied to the history of the invention of custom uh, because you are you've created a community a hill tribe and then you have then uh, you know given it a custom which was not its you know and the idea of a chief so you referred to uh, the pernicious continuation mm. of some of these mm. sort of legal mm. tropes mm. in the post-colonial mm. uh, period so mm. can you tell us a little bit about mm. the relationship between mm. colonial and post-colonial legislation on uh, the category of tribe you know i have been th i've been thinking about i mean i i know uh, you know people have been writing and you know writing on this but i again you know through my recent research i when i was looking at the sixth schedule the debates around the sixth schedule again and i read them very closely one is really quite struck by how uh, you know how d you know deeply kind of uh, ahistorical uh, the 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 categorization of the communities of the hills is you know in the you know in the in the language of the constituent assembly members you know including the subcommittee set up under uh, gopinath bordoloi the the manner the manner in which the the history of all these com of communities by then of course very clearly there's a hill plain divide is erased, as in the history of uh, you know conquest, the history of resistance, the history of their politics, and and it was uh, it was I mean it, you see that at many points in the debates, but it was when I came across this book, um, you know Ornit Shani's uh, book uh, on how democracy yes. works. She actually says that's more than six hundred thousand. Uh, inhabitants of northeastern India were de were not given the franchise at the time of uh, uh, you know uh, uh, at the time of uh, the preparation of the electoral polls, and they got a right to vote only in the late 1970s. And the arguments that were given in the Constituent Assembly uh, and in this uh, you know in the in the sub, you know subcommittee, uh, you know despite you know long petitioning by these by communities in these areas claiming that they can have the right to represent themselves, was merely that they have to be in this waiting room of history because they have not yet uh, you know reached a level of being able to represent themselves they cannot vote so they were citizens but they actually remained subjects and uh, and it gives you uh, you know very you know a strong sense of the manner in which we are you know that there was a refusal of the post colonial state to give to, to, to kind of to take cognition of the politics uh, you know of, of this region in the true sense of the term mm -hmm. and and that they have had the longest history of resisting the state or actually being political uh, of course at that point of time it had to be only the nation and your the manner in which you related to nationalism uh, of a certain kind so um, yeah that I think that that legacy and the fact that we have stayed as we know very well with the category of the tra initially of course in the sixth schedule uh, you know the only only if you were from the hills could you get 
recognized as a tribe as a as as, as someone who could be you know who could benefit from uh, you know the polit- you know from uh, from reservation and so on so um, yes i mean it, i think the, the those legacies are there very much to see but i was not uh, aware of this very important exclusion uh, from the electoral rolls itself and and the manner in which uh, this has played out you know primarily as a result of this erasure of of this long history of and i think it's an depersonalization of what is a tribe and and what is a hill tribe and what is a savage and the and the language is i mean that kind of gradation that you know very carefully calibrated that if you are in the foothills you are more civilized mm-hmm. and you know your james scotts uh, uh, you know and and of course many others <laughs> edmund leaches and others who mm-hmm. argued and have shown us this you know that's exactly what plays out in the sixth in, in the in the in the constituent assembly debates i want to hear about your forthcoming book uh, what does it cover when can we expect to have it in our hands mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's uh, it's been again a long time in the making. It's been almost I think 8 years and yeah, it it is a book uh, about the conquest of a community. You know, it is about the Garos, but uh, I do not want to say it is just about the Garos because when we say Garos we think about Garos in the present, but I would rather uh, think about the manner in which the community comes to be forged through a, a long period of conquest and the loss of sovereignty really. So it has been also about understanding what is sovereignty uh, in a way I, I I do not know if I had the conceptual apparatus to understand it but I really saw it as being very deep you know kind of strongly pegged on cotton uh, and the and the cotton production the cotton trade and the manner in which Uh, the cotton as a tribute uh, for the you know the the chauderies uh, slash zamindars around um, you know low you know these foothills and their relationship with the mughals was actually determined by the garo uh, cotton that was produced in the hills mm-hmm. so garo's playing at that point of time very important role in the regional political order it upsets many set binaries of uh, not just hill plain but of a you know of why for example were they not called peasants you know agriculturalist peasants. peasants traders uh, that is how one sees them in in the late 18th century early 19th century records and then their transformation into this quintessential savage of every imperial civilizational narrative right so it is a very dramatic very irreversible change uh, and that takes place continuously with the change in the political economy cotton remains but as a commodity Uh, an important uh, commodity in trade but deeply regulated no longer kind of expression of sovereign will and the transformation into uh, of this region into another land of capital colonial capital and this time the elephant mahals so that's the story i trace it's a stro- story of uh, colonial conquest but i think it is also a, a story of a deep military violence uh, so i privilege that a lot to talk about how colonialism is uh, you know I, i think the cultural discourse was threatening to displace the military discourse i mean the, the fact that colonialism was also about a military rule uh, mm-hmm. for a long time in historiography so i wanted to bring that back and show uh, you know talk about the violence the exceptional violence of colonialism and uh, this very long history of uh, resistance to it i think the final manuscript should be in place in the summer and then we can you know hope to see it in print sometime soon sometime in this year hopefully very exciting yeah um finally i have a bit of a contentious question mm-hmm. which is about the relationship between being from the northeast and writing mm-hmm. on the northeast mm-hmm. similar to i think 
debates about other places and other contexts. Mm. I personally felt, as yeah. I was telling you earlier, like you that yeah. uh, the only reason I feel like I got through writing the PhD and even the book is because of my deep love for the place and um, politics uh, that kind of emerges from having grown mm. up there. But that is not really an intellectual argument about, you know, speaking from within. I feel like uh, mm. it's a much, the idea and materiality of within is very fraught and very complex. Uh, so can you share your thoughts about the limitations of the discourse of belonging and speaking from within? Yeah, like you said, it's it's a very fraught uh, problem. It's a very fraught question. Uh, one, I mean, on the one hand, there is the advantage of belonging, you know, which is that you uh, there is a familiarity which you can never, uh, you know, replace, uh, and and that familiarity has to do. I think I completely agree with you. It has to do with one's uh, sense of you know justice, politics, of of writing, of recovering a history of a place that you think will otherwise not be written. You know, how do you relate to that uh, place, and how do you then uh, you know kind of uh, of course the contemporary always weighs heavy on one's mind that there must be a way you, you to correct misconceptions in you know. In popular in, a, in popular perceptions of the northeast these are ways of it's a way of also responding to you know making history respond to uh, many ideas about the northeast that people have in you know mainland india and or so on uh, so so that that drives you and that that drove me too to to write uh, and to think about it but uh, but also there is a there is also this problem which i think i i feel now one en encounters more and more and which is which takes me back to your very first question about teaching a course on northeastern india that i feel that one has to find a way of making these you know connections with you know resonances with the rest of the subcontinent whether it is in the creation let's say you know one of comprehending colonialism but even about understanding the fact that this hill plain binary for example that we talk about in the context of northeastern india is not about Northeastern India, it's, it's, it, it actually begins, it's a trope, it begins with, in Bhagalpur, in the Santal Parganas, it begins in the, you know, 1760s, much earlier. So we're talking about, you know, in, in the figure of Augustus Cleveland. So mm -hmm. these are ways, strategies of conquest. So there are ways and ways of connecting, I think, you know, even the zones of anomaly, exception, whatever mm -hmm. that we call, you know, again, these, these again, legal primitivism, you know, critiques of legal primitivism, all of this can very well take us to other parts uh, of the subcontinent and elsewhere. And I think it's very important to draw those lines and not write a history of exception for Northeast India. And I think that takes me to this whole question of indigeneity, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, one I think has to be very cautious about and think of because often the, the danger of while, while the discourse around indigeneity can uh, is very enabling very empowering and and especially for you know loss of livelihoods and and you know dispossession brought on by you know uh, you know so many forces of global capital and and indigeneity can be a very powerful discourse it is equally important for us to be cautious and not allow that discourse to slip into a core you know into a discourse of race and descent and so on and and which then is deeply exclusionary as we know and can be deeply violent 
so uh, so yes i think that sense that indigenous and that sense of belonging must always uh, you know be be kind of located in this critical kind of uh, case one has to continuously do this you know self reflection questioning i mean that interrogation continues i think yeah thank you so much for tying together this conversation mm-hmm. so well with the first uh, and the last question yeah, yeah, it was such was a pleasure having you in the studio thank and uh, talking to you thank you and you should I have spo- you should have spoken as much because your uh, knowledge of you know the region and the place yeah. but we'll, we'll continue to nah. talk we'll do that outside afterwards. the studio yes, yes. thank you yeah